Hey, I'm Steve O'Farrell, co-founder and managing partner at The Royals, an independent Australian advertising agency that's focused on delivering unnatural change for clients through undeniable creativity. Our podcast, Chunk of Change, is where we go deep on the methods and madness required to create the sort of change that you want to see in the world. In this episode of Chunk of Change, we're joined by CEO of ThoughtWorks North America, Chris Murphy. With a background in software development and technology law, Chris has held a variety of executive roles at ThoughtWorks, including Chief Strategy Officer, Global Head of Marketing, and MD of Europe prior to his move to the US in 2018. Chris's remarkable 16-year career at the companies happened at the same time that ThoughtWorks has gone through its own type of metamorphosis. From a small team in Chicago some 25 years ago to a global digital consulting powerhouse with over 9,000 people across 47 offices and 17 countries. So please enjoy this chunk of change with Chris Murphy, CEO of ThoughtWorks North America. Hey, Chris, thanks very much for joining us on Chunk of Change. Hi, Steve. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. So Chris, ThoughtWorks has been around for 25 years, as I said earlier. Um, You've worked with the company for 16 of those 25 years. Am I right? 16? 16 years. Yes, coming on 17 this year. So yep, a fair amount of time. And look, you've held almost every type of executive role imaginable during that time. I'd love if you could start by taking us through the, the major phases of your career over that 16-year period, maybe going all the way back to when you started with ThoughtWorks, I guess back in 2004. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've been fortunate, as you say, to have a number of different career transitions. And you know, I like to describe it a bit as I, you know, I, I'm like a, a, a non-practicing computer scientist, a software developer, I'm a lapsed lawyer, I'm a lapsed marketer. It's a whole bunch of things that I don't really do so well anymore. Um, which is probably why I'm in the role I'm in at the moment, where I, I don't do anything per se other than gather those types of people around me. Um, but, you know, for me, I guess uh, a, a lot of this was fortunate timing, how I got all these opportunities, in that, um, you know, I was a, a, a youngish lawyer working in London and I got a call from this company called ThoughtWorks. Um, and it, and it, was, it was great. It was a combination of my, you know, my background and passion for technology and software and, and for law. Um, but, you know, when I got there, actually, there wasn't much legal work to do. Uh, we, we were quite small. We had a couple of clients. They had contracts. Um, and so it was really one of those circumstances where I, I needed to find, you know, something to keep myself busy. And, and from there, everything really, really flowed. Um, you know, I, I started getting involved in different aspects of what was a, you know, reasonably small UK business. Um, and that led to me taking on operational responsibility, um, led to me... Um, you know, playing a really quite substantial role in the in in the UK business for a period of time, um, and then that led to something where, um, you know, I think I was the the token Australian in the UK office. Uh, opportunity came up to lead the Australian offices, which were also quite small at the time, and and that coincided well with me. So it was a series of, you know, transitions uh, which were good fortune in that I joined the right company at the right time. It was growing. It had lots of needs. It had a culture which embraced and encouraged um, people to take on new things, even if, uh, you know, in my instance, I didn't know some of those things when I started. Um, And then I think it was also a combination of my personality type. Uh, You know, I like learning. I like doing new things. Um, I'm perhaps overconfident sometimes, so I'm happy to jump into areas that I don't know so much about. And those two coincided uh, really well. Starting off as legal counsel and then ending up as CEO of the North American operation over a period of 16 years is quite the change story. Is that, is that type of trajectory a common one in an organisation like ThoughtWorks or are you a bit of an anomaly? Um, well, I think I'm an anomaly for a whole variety of reasons, Steve. But, um, <laughs> we'll get into in, that. In the, yeah, in the ThoughtWorks context, I, I wouldn't say so much. I, I would say it is quite common for people to take multiple different career paths uh, in fact, when I interview people, I often, I often give them both a warning and an opportunity, and that's that I say, look, the best thing about ThoughtWorks is that there are, you know, no clear structured career paths. 
And the worst thing about ThoughtWorks is that there are no clear structured career paths. And of course, we've changed that a bit as we've scaled in that we need to provide both structure for people and opportunity for people. But I, I think that, that that premise holds is that your career should be driven by opportunity and desire rather than these formal structures which constrain you. What else as part of ThoughtWorks encourages that, Chris? Particularly when you have such deep areas of specialty in technology, what is it about the culture that promotes learning and development specifically in such a unique and interesting way? Well, I think it's the very nature of, uh, of, a, of a consultancy in the technology space. So you, we have to gather and hire and collect and curate people who value learning and who are passionate about learning new things. Because if we don't, then within six months, we've got a whole bunch of people who know things that aren't as relevant as they were six months earlier. Uh, and so that's a very fundamental cultural premise that you are curious, you're open and you're passionate for learning. And then I think we add to that a, a desire and a passion to share that learning. So if you want to come and learn both for yourself, but then help others learn, whether they're your colleagues or whether they're the industry at whole, um, that really promulgates through in how we have a learning culture, but also how we've been, I think, successful in influencing so many of the trends in software development over the last 25 years. So speaking of change, I mean, tell us um, over the course of the last 25 years since the company was founded, but in particular the last 16, I guess, about some of those major changes in the business during that time. Sure, yeah. Um, well, I guess... You know, 16 years has gone really fast. Um, and I think that's that's both true by way of uh, my personal life, it's true by way of ThoughtWorks life, and it's true by way of um, technology. You know, um, if you think about 16 years ago, we didn't have smartphones. The, the iPhone wasn't a thing. Um, the internet was kind of a thing. You know, we had it, we had web browsers. But the notion of being able to go to a shop and buy something um, and have it delivered in a reasonable period of time with a reasonable guarantee that it worked was still quite remote. Um, so we've seen this quite extraordinary period of, of uh, technological change over the period that I've been at ThoughtWorks. Um, and I think that has manifested itself a lot in how ThoughtWorks has had to evolve. Um, I think in the old days uh, when I joined, what we really were was a software project type company where we'd go in with a very defined project, build a web, uh, you know, a web portal or something. That's typically something on the web at that stage. Uh, through to now where what it is is companies and organisations coming in and say, hey, ThoughtWorks, hey, Chris, we need to be a digital organisation. Help us digitise ourselves. So we're seeing this shift from being a software project company to a digital transformation organization. Um, and, and that has caused obviously a lot of, um, you know, significant organizational shifts to accommodate that. Um, you know, we've become much more of a consultancy as well as a uh, company that writes software. We've got to both be able to develop products and platforms and help our clients understand why they should develop them and and what the right things to develop are and, and what it means for them to be a digital organisation and how they change. So there's been a, a, a lot of different uh, capabilities that we've had to just keep adding and adding and adding. Of course, you add to that geographic expansion, uh, you add to that uh, you know, expansion of, of diversity and, and of both thought workers and client base. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's an ever-changing feast um, is the way I'd best describe it. So Chris, you're in one of the most dynamic and fast-changing consulting sectors there is. How do you find the sweet spot that exists between kind of staying ahead of the curve and anticipating where technology trends are headed versus ensuring you're making the most of the commercial opportunities right now? I mean, even in the micro scale of our own communications consultancy at the Royals, like we're constantly challenged with where to double down on tech versus where to invest from a resource perspective. Yeah, I think my, my colleagues at ThoughtWorks, my more technical colleagues, have got a, a great way of thinking about this. And, and so one of the publications that we, um, we publish regularly, three or four times 
two or three times a year. It's what's called the, the technology radar. And it looks at, it's quite technical. It looks at trends in, in, in technology. And then um, has uh, the radar metaphor is um, whether you should adopt them. And, and the test for this is, you know, whether you mention that you haven't adopted this to your friend in a pub and they laugh at you. Um, <laughs> right through to whether you should trial something. And, uh, and trial something is saying, look, it's not, we don't think it's ready for the prime time. We don't think you should bet your business on it, um, but start experimenting with it. Start doing some small things. Start seeing how it works in your environment and, and finding out about it. And I think this this approach of having a, a portfolio of, of things you've assessed, they're known, they're trialed, they're mature, um, they're regularly supportable because uh, you don't want to be building into enterprises things that can't be maintained or you can't get easy access to talent for them. So just do them, adopt them. They're, they're mature, they're effective, they're known. Um, and then to be keeping a, a head, be constantly scanning the, the environment, use things like our tech radar to understand it, and then be looking for the right ways to, to bring those into your technology ecosystem to experiment with them and to, and to trial with them. And then you get the balance of the proven, the tested, the true, uh, and the leading edge right through to the bleeding edge. And how do you get, or how do you work with clients to help them transform digitally? I realize that probably sounds like a bit of a basic question, but the type, the scale that ThoughtWorks operates at is fairly large and I'm sure you guys don't come cheap, but (laughs) how do you get them to buy into to such seriously big bets because you are fundamentally changing in a lot of instances the core of the way that the company works and operates. Correct. Yeah, I mean, on the you know on the subject of cost, it is of course all about value, Steve. Um, <laughs> which you know I say jokingly, but not really jokingly, because if you look at you know what digital transformation is for many companies, it's it's in many instances ex- existential, and and then really it's a question of. Um, what's the time frame in which we're talking about the existential threat rather than if, if it's a reality. It's something that we've, um, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about at ThoughtWorks because, as I said, when we started, we weren't a digital transformation company. It wasn't a thing. And then uh, probably like four or five years ago, in particular, what we started to see was a trend, a couple of trends. One was uh, instead of people coming to us and saying, hey, we've got this project that we want you to help us with or to, you to run for us, I'd start saying, hey, my, my boss, my board, my CEO is telling me that we've got to become a digital company. So ThoughtWorks, um, one digital company, please. And, uh, you know, at first it really perplexed us because we weren't really sure what this, this digital company was. Um, and so we spent quite a bit of time, um, you know, talking to our clients and thinking about that internally. And we came up with a, a model that's called the digital fluency model. And it, it looks across several areas, uh, organizational capability, leadership, foundational technology, platforms, data, product and customer experience. Um, and what it does is it maps both where a company is now and where it desires to be in terms of each of those um, levels of maturity. Um, and what you realize is that there is no one size fits, fits all model for digital transformation. There's no, you can't go and buy digital transformation in a box as much as many, you know, companies will try and sell it to you because at the heart of digital transformation is, has got to be a vision for what do you, where do you want your company to be? Um, the reason we call it a digital fluency model is interesting. The, the fluency metaphor, because for instance, um, you know, if you're using a, uh, a fluency model, if you're going to a French restaurant for dinner, you probably don't need to spend too much time investing in learning French. If you're going to Paris for a week, you might want to get some foundational, hello, goodbye, um, can I have two beers, please? Um, and if you're going to move there to live and work for 10 years, you're probably going to want to be investing in some serious fluency in the language. And the same thing applies to the digital space in that what you see is not every company needs to be brilliant at everything. Um, Some companies really have data as a differentiator and they need to be excellent at data. Um, But do they have to have the best user experience if it's all about machine analytics and that? Probably not. Other companies will be intensely experiential focused. 
Um, and they'll want to invest very much in that as a differentiator. Um, you know, do they need to be thinking too much about whether they've got these um, uh, amazing platform capabilities, perhaps to a level, but not to the same differentiating extent. So it's this, it's this model for looking at understanding actually what do you mean by digital and then passing that out a bit and then drawing a roadmap based upon those intents rather than just bringing this cookie cutter one size fits all uh, model. And, um, you know, we've seen a lot of success with that over the years. And what has to come first in that digital transformation story, Chris? Is, is it the skill sets? Is it the vision? Or is it the culture that you look to prioritise, at least to start? Look, I think it needs to be, it needs to be a, a driven by a level of vision. You know, the organisation needs to have a, a vision about where it wants to go. Um, where it is now, needs to know where it is now. It's important. Quite often, a lot of companies don't know where they are now. And then it needs to understand where it wants to go. And then we can bring digital capabilities to get them there. And of course, you know, it's not that simple. It's messy. You know, as you learn about digital technologies or as new things emerge, you adapt the vision or how you manifest it to address those. Um, But it will fail if a company just comes in and wants to go digital for digital sake, because you can spend a lot of money on digital technologies. But unless they're furthering your competitive differentiation, um, unless they're furthering your reason for existing as, a, as an organisation and manifesting that more effectively through digital, then all you're doing is spending money. You mentioned it does get messy inevitably. When I think of messy scenarios, I think of people making mistakes. How important is a tolerance for, for making mistakes through that process in order to achieve the vision that you're looking to, to ultimately arrive at? Yeah, a lot of it comes down to uh, what you mean by mistakes. So what you want to do is you want to have really regular feedback loops um, and you want to start regularly. If you're making mistakes, you want to realise that early. You want to take the learnings from those mistakes and you want to adapt them into the process. And then you want to move forward, hopefully making less and less mistakes as you learn more and more. What you don't want to do is have a big bang program with very little feedback loops right until the very end. Because then the risk is you get one big mistake that you don't realise until you're three years down the path. That is a really bad mistake. It, people say, you know, failing's okay. That type of failure isn't so okay. Uh, you know, the key is to be intentional, to intentionally experiment, to use it as a way to gather feedback, to create a, a virtuous le- learning cycle. And, and fail in small ways that uh, then enable you to correct. And presumably to actively build that into your project planning process as well. Yeah, I mean, you know... The cost and time implications for those learning experiences throughout. Correct. It, it needs to be intentional. It needs to be upfront that that's part of the process. And, um, you know, I think the thing with, with the digital world, and this is something that I think a lot of people don't understand, is that the digital world enables this in ways that weren't possible. Previously, like if you're if you're building a bridge, you're probably not going to know if you got it wrong until you've got the whole bridge up there and it's just not standing upright. Um, but software is fundamentally different. You know, you don't have to build the whole product at once. You can buy, you can build it, particularly using modern software tools and approaches, in, in very you know small incremental regular chunks. And if something if it's built well, if you're if you're building it using um, you know flexible appropriate techniques, then you can change it really easy. You should be able to change it really easy. And that's, you know, you hear about the agile approaches to software development. You know, the the whole agile movement is overhyped. Really at its heart is using modern software approaches to reflect that technology can and should be um, uh, changed regularly, that it should be, you should recognize that change happens and embrace it, and then look to be providing value regularly in short incremental chunks to bring that value forward and to learn as much as you can as early as you can. ThoughtWorks goes up against some of the biggest consulting firms in the world. Now, consulting and professional services in general around the world is absolutely booming. Customers of consulting firms, I would argue, are probably spoiled for choice at this stage of the game. Inevitably, customers, when they're looking for the right partner, are going to ask you questions about differentiation. It's always one of those really difficult ones to answer, I reckon. So I'm going to ask it of you. What what makes ThoughtWorks different? 
for me, I think the, the differentiator for ThoughtWorks is um, where we've got what we call technology at our core. So, you know, we're a digital native company. We're an organization that has always seen technology as a strategic differentiator. Um, we're an organization that's always um, been at the heart of learning, um, contributing, defining the industry. Um, we've got extensive thought leadership. Uh, I think we've written over 125 books uh, and growing at present. Um, I always like to say to our, you know, our, our clients, well, you can hire the companies that read the books or you can hire the company <laughs> that wrote the books. And, you know, I like and, that. and uh, you know, obviously we're the latter one. Um, but, you know, for us, uh, we, were, we were one of the early adopters, for instance, of the agile approaches to software development, um, not because it was trendy at the time, it most certainly wasn't, but, but because we saw them as a imperfect but still better way of taking advantage of the, the shifts we were seeing in, in modern software architectures and tools and frameworks and languages. And then over time, those, as technology changes, approaches change and you adopt and you embrace them and you bring them to play for the uh, benefit of your customers. So uh, why is ThoughtWorks different? Um, we're thought leaders, um, we're, we're practical and we work with clients who really see technology as a key strategic differentiator for what makes them different. You're, you were also unique in terms of sort of your genesis and the fact that you were started by a gentleman called Roy Singham mm -hmm. um, about 25 years ago. He was quite the legend of the industry, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, I think Roy has uh, you know, many characteristics that are in common with a lot of entrepreneurs. You know, he's mad, he's brilliant, he's charismatic, he's uh, entrepreneurial. Um, and then I think he has a few things that are not so in common with, you know, many entrepreneurs and that, you know, he started his life as a, as a social activist who just sort of ended up veering into software and running a large global software consultancy for a period. He has a very strong sense uh, of uh, activism, social justice, uh, and... and really inculcated that into ThoughtWorks from the, the very start. So it was this uh, strange uh, and quite unique mishmash, I think, of commercial entity, of social entity, of technological entity, um, really trying to mishmash these different, uh, quite often competing aspects uh, of life and of society together into one big melting pot. So, because Roy sold his piece of the business, I believe the last his last kind of share in the business in about two thousand and seventeen. Correct. Has that fundamentally changed, or has that had an impact on on the culture of the organisation, or how would you describe how things have changed since? Because you're right, presumably, you know, for purpose social enterprise does at times conflict with you know for profit commercial uh, ways of working. As yeah, well, inevitably. Yeah, I think there are a few things there. I mean, obviously, it was a huge shift for ThoughtWorks um, because we've gone from being a founder-owned company um, to one that took in, you know, a, a full ownership of, uh, you know, uh, of capital. In our case, Apex Partners, um, and so you often see that story not go well. And so it was one we were very intentional about. I think there are a few things that led to it being successful and it has been very successful, fortunately. Uh, one was that I think one of the things that Roy did really well to, that made him successful was that he realised early, unlike the story you see with many founders, was that he couldn't and shouldn't do everything. And he was really clever in that he surrounded himself with people who complimented him and set up the structure for a successful business that could run without him. So, so well before... Um, he sold ThoughtWorks and went on to his, you know, post-ThoughtWorks social endeavours. Um, he had taken much more of a role as our, you know, as our chairman um, overseeing the organisation rather than running it. So that, that really helped when that transition came. The second was that, um, you know, the, the partners we ended up going with, Apex Partners, um, you know, we, we chose to go with them, uh, Roy chose to go with them because they understood our business. So they're, they're growth investors. They bring a huge amount of expertise and have bought a huge amount of expertise, which has really helped us. 
But they're also very much, they understand we're a people business, that we're a peculiar culture, that that, that, that combination of culture and people is really the defining asset. Um, and so they've been very protective of that and very supportive of that and very enabling of that. And, uh, and what that has meant is that um, what, what could have been disastrous if it had gone wrong has actually been incredibly successful and that we've got the best combination of, um, you know, the, the culture we had, the technology leadership ha- we had, the people we had and the capital backing and the professional support to enable that to, to grow and, um, um, you know, become more valuable. So it's, so far it's been a win-win, which is heartening. So Chris, ThoughtWorks now has over 9,000 people across 47 offices in 17 countries. There's some extraordinary numbers. What's been most key to that growth story? Yeah, I think it's many of the things we've talked about, um, you know, and, and a fair level of luck. You know, one is that, you know, I think the growth story has been driven by the inexorable march of, of technology in, in the role of the world. Um, and you combine that with an organization who was founded on bringing passionate people who love technology, who love learning, who like sharing that together, um, who can work with clients to create an impact. And that leads, you know, inevitably to, you know, the growth that we've had the good fortune to see. Um, you know, over the, the, the period of those 27 years, most of that growth, if not the, the overwhelming majority of that growth has been... Um, on the back of inbound calls. And those inbound calls have come on the back of the thought leadership, uh, the books, the people who speak at conference, the open source tools, you know, people who know us through that, or on the back of, um, you know, referrals from other other clients who'd um, worked with us and, you know, wanted wanted to bring us in as well. So um, that again, that virtuous cycle of right place, right time, passionate, curious technologists who are known thought leaders, word of mouth, um, and, you know, uh, effectively delivering for customers again and again. You were global head of marketing um, for a period of time as well, Chris. That would have made your job fairly easy if the growth is driven by inbound calls. It really did. I mean, I always say it's, uh, well, it's both a blessing and a curse in that it's a... Why do you say that? It's a blessing in that um, who wouldn't want um, the great fortune of, um, a huge amount of thought leadership, a huge amount of content and inbound calls on the back of it. It's a curse though in that um, what it enabled us to do for a period of time is to become a bit reactive. So where if we're only responding to inbound calls, we're, we're reacting um, to what's come into the market, which is fine, but you also need to be looking at, at shaping the market proactively. So I think over time... Um, you know, uh, and this was part of the responsibility I had when I looked after marketing. It was how do we not lose, how do we embrace the golden goose that is though that, that thought leadership and those inbounds, but how do we augment that by having a more opinionated view that we, um, you know, put out there in the market so that we're as much masters of our own destiny as we are subject to the, you know, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune of our thought leadership. How do you manage growth in the appropriate way? Because there's so many examples of companies that have quite frankly grown too quickly and, and ultimately fallen over. Yeah. But how does, with particularly with such a significant demand for your services, how do you make sure that you grow in the right ways to make sure that you're doing justice and doing the right thing by your, your current client base, but also continuing to explore where to next? Yeah, I mean, you know, as a consultancy, I would say that, you know, the overwhelming majority of our work year on year uh, is with our existing client base. So we, you know, we grow with them. So they are a prime asset and you look after them. And if you look after your existing clients well, then a lot of good things follow. That's, you know, number one rule of business, number one rule of consulting, um, often forgotten in the execution, but I, I think it's imperative. Uh, and then, of course, you know, we have the good fortune of um, winning and meeting new clients uh, and being uh, intentional about, um, you know, that dance, the, being intentional about what who we are and what the value we bring is, um, understanding who they are and, and what the what they're looking for are and, um, you know, taking them on when those two things fit. Um, because if those two things don't fit, for instance, if they see technology as a commodity uh, where, where, to be acquired at the lowest possible prices, we see it as a strategic differentiator to be looked at the, the top and bottom line 
um, then you know those those two things won't won't marry. And do you pitch? Do you actively pitch for business on a regular basis? Well, as well, presumably so. Have you got any interesting pitch stories for us? Oh, an interesting um, interesting pitch story. Because m- my understanding is that you sometimes you actually have to prove your capabilities ah. in real time in hackathons yeah. and those sorts of forums in terms of trying to prove your own capability. It doesn't get much more intense than that. Yeah, that's 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 actually a good. Uh, a good prompt. Um, yeah, there was. Uh, there's a good example I've got in that space. So, you know, this was a this was a client that we we ended up um, doing work with, it, based out of the UK. And what they were was they're a consortium um, that had been put together out of energy companies, banks, and uh, oil traders. And they saw that there was this real problem they had, in that it's all paper based. It's a global trade. It's very complicated, and it's based on paper. And you know, reams of paper that were literally sent around the world. And, um, you know, they saw an opportunity to use a, a new technology, blockchain, which was they felt was probably uniquely suited to solve this problem because the blockchain at its heart, of course, is, a, is, an, is an audit trail that's cryptographically secured. And so um, the problem with blockchain is there's very little people that have prior demonstrative expertise in, in building anything on the blockchain because it's, it's new, it's a bit experimental, it's a bit overhyped in many instances. And so what they did, this consortium, they put out an RFP uh, and said, you know, put your names in the hat. And everyone did. Uh, we did as well. We thought it was really interesting because of the, you know, the technologies involved and the, and the challenge. And I think they started off with something like 70 or 80 different companies that applied. They narrowed it down to uh, some 12. And then they had that 12 of us do a six-week hackathon as a proof of concept. Um, and it was very much like, you know, it's like the Great British Bake Off or something that people got, you know, ejected <laughs> at certain stages. And, and they were very clever in that what they did was that we were like two or three weeks from the end and then they changed the rules. They said, oh, we've learned new things. Everything's changed. Go in this direction. And I think, you know, where we proved our mettle was the way we naturally develop is, is very flexible, is very agile. And we build software in a way that enables that. And so where a lot of our competitors had to throw out what they had and start from scratch, we were able to pivot really quickly and, and be successful. So, yeah, we, um, it, was, it was literally there was a lot of sleepless nights for our teams. They were working day and night. They were working weekends. They brought it in. And that ended up being a very successful engagement for us. We got the, uh, you know, the first launch of the product done six months later. And that's, uh, you know, that's in, that's in, in place now and uh, is successfully being used. So it was a very, uh, well very intense but very validating uh, experience. Well done. Do you get paid out of interest? Do you get paid for those types of pitch processes? Uh, that one we didn't. Um, you know, we obviously got paid for the work uh, that followed on for it. But, you know, it's not, it's not a common way of doing a work. Fortunately, if we had to win every piece of work that way, it would be a bit, uh, bit expensive and a, arduous, bit, yeah. a, a bit arduous. Um, but, you know, in that instance where it's something like really interesting, really uh, proven, we were going to learn from that anyway. And we were going to learn from the experience of, uh, you know, working in the, with that blockchain, regardless of what the result was. Can you tell us a little bit more about your decision-making process as it relates to the, the types of pitches that you, you choose to get involved in? Yeah, uh, you know, absolutely. So it, it's a combination of different things, as you'd expect. So, you know, one is who is the organisation? What role do they see technology as playing in their organisation? Do they really truly see it as a strategic differentiator for them? Do they have leadership who's invested in seeing it as a strategic differentiator for them? Um, it, do they have money to spend? Uh, that's a good, uh, a good illustrator of whether they truly believe uh, that technology is a key differentiator. Um, are the stakeholders who are buying it influential in the organisation? Um, are they going to be able to fight the battles they need to fight? Um, are they doing interesting things with technology? Um, you know, so all, all of those are the types of, you know, are they looking for a long-term partner or are they looking for just, you know, a, a short-term uh, one-off? It's not to say that short-term one-offs are things that, you know, we don't or shouldn't do, but it's a, you know, it's a qualifying factor for sure. And what about from the other side of the fence, Chris? What advice would you have for prospective customers looking for a digital transformation partner to work with? Yeah. So, you know, obviously look at ThoughtWorks because, uh, you know, why, why would you not? Good plan. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, but no, I, I think, you know, there really are, there's a lot of great organisations out there um, in, the, in the consultancy space. And a, a lot of it is determining, well, 
what are you looking for in terms of expertise? What are you looking to do? Um, and then aligning your partner with that specialization. I think a, an often underthought through thing is cultural alignment. Uh, organizations have very strong cultures. Um, if you're choosing a, uh, a consultancy, a partner that's going to work with you through a long-term transformation, and you're fundamentally culturally misaligned, that could be setting yourself up for um, challenges. Unless, of course, you're seeking to fundamentally change your culture, in which case it you know, might be a good thing, but you've got to be intentional about it. So, you how know, do look, you pressure test? How do you test for culture, though, Chris? That's got to be a, a challenging thing to be able to figure out. Yeah, um, it, it is. I mean, I think most organisations have a pretty... You, you can find out reasonably easy from uh, their external positioning, from their LinkedIn, uh, from their Glassdoor, what type of culture they have. You can also quite see it in the, in the organisational design. Um, so um, a lot of traditional companies who are based on very Taylorist, you know, principles out of the Industrial Revolution, um, you know, they're, they're the ones that are going to struggle the most. And, you know, for instance, you know, the whole notion of modern management theory is based on the fact that you get a whole lot of uneducated workers out of the, you know, out of the northeast of England uh, who are illiterate. You put them in... Um, uh, you know, big factories and, and they, you tell them how to weave and you organise yourself. Now, in the modern knowledge economy, clearly it's very different. What you're trying to get is really highly educated workers. You want a creative space. You want to create an environment to have them, um, you know, innovate and bring things to market quickly. But a lot of organisations, we still apply these, you know, 18th century industrial paradigms from uh, you know, Man Manchester uh, looms. Literally, we do. The, the industrial <laughs> theory is built on that. And we wonder why we're not successful. Um, and so when you look at culture, um, you know, part of it is investigating, well, where is the organisation in, in, in that industrial, uh, you know, uh, paradigm? And then what is their desire to change that? So, Chris, one way of keeping pace with the competition, I guess, is acquiring those capabilities yourself versus developing them organically, so to speak. Can you tell us about the technology acquisitions ThoughtWorks has made recently and perhaps give us a bit of a sense as to why you chose to make them? The good news is that, you know, uh, as, a, as an established company that's uh, in, a, in a vibrant market for technology, that we've got good steady cash flow ourselves that we can use to invest. Um, and, you know, so what do we, what do we invest in at the moment? Uh, we've, uh, we've had the good fortune to acquire a couple of very interesting companies recently. We acquired a, um, a, a small data science uh, business consultancy in Finland uh, called Forkind. It's uh, they do amazing stuff. Um, one of the things they did was they created the first. They worked with a company to create the very first AI designed uh, whiskey. Uh, oh, sounds delicious! And I think they're doing the same with Oreos. So some really exciting stuff there from a culinary perspective. How does um, that work? How does an AI-designed Oreo or even an AI-designed whiskey actually work in I, reality? I don't know. These are people smarter than me. You'd have to, <laughs> you'd have to ask them. Uh, but I believe it tastes very good. So, you know, um, you know so there you go. And then we've also, um, you know, we've also recently acquired some really great people in, uh, in Romania, uh, which was more a geographic expansion for us. So that's, you know, that's on the uh, acquisition side. Um, but, you know, one of the things clearly we do, most of our growth ha has historically been and will continue to be organic. And so really investing in the things that are important to us in um, investing in continuing to be able to drive out the thought leadership in continuing to be able to invest in building new in demand capabilities through upskilling our own people in continuing to be able to, you know, build out the, the virtual environment where we can continue our culture. So. So, Chris, you mentioned earlier that COVID, at a macro level anyway, has actually been pretty good for business. What about specifically from a technology perspective? What areas of tech do you see as holding the greatest potential as a source of growth over the next couple of years? Um, yeah, I mean, there are, there are a few big areas at the moment. Um, you know, one, one of the big areas that a lot of companies are thinking about is you know, what I would call is, you know, digital platform strategy. But at its heart, what is this, this is about is about modernizing their underlying tech platforms so that their development and product teams can bring things to market quicker. A lot of big companies um, have made a lot of good decisions over a long period of time, which when you wrap them all up, up over 30, 40, 50 years, um, 
become quite immovable, monolithic um, anchors. And so a lot of the big, uh, the, big, the big existing enterprises are having to go through a period of modernization about building this modern digital platform, which enables them to compete with the uh, digital native um, startups and scale-ups, which are really rapidly coming to market with new propositions and, and you know, trying to take their market share away. So that's a big area. Um, another big area that we see in the digital space is, of course, the, the, the pos- prospects around different ways of interacting with technology. So, you know, it used to be that you just interacted through a computer and a clunky one at that, and then that became, you know, better and better and better, and then you introduced mobility, and now you've got smart connected devices, and you've got uh, voice, which actually works, which can actually understand you, um, which is still amazing. He still blows me away. You've got, um, you know, things like facial recognition. Uh, you've got VR. And these ways of interacting with um, technology, this ubiquitous computing where you almost don't know it's there, is really changing the way that people interact with it. So I think that's a very, that's a very um, rapidly changing uh, space, which um, I think customers need to be able to embrace uh, quickly. So you're a guy who obviously loves technology and you can tell it in the passion in your voice when you describe some of these emerging technologies. Are there any passion projects that you can think of most recently for ThoughtWorks that you're perhaps most proud of? Yeah, there's, there's a few, I guess. I mean, one was, I think, COVID-born, uh, which, is, you know, which is really relevant because you're, you're probably aware of um, you know, Earth Day. And you know, Earth Day is born out of you know, the movement to recognise the, the changes that are happening, the man-made changes that are happening uh, to the climate and to find a way to engage people in that and make it real for them. And, you know, it's been manifested historically through, you know, big physical gatherings and through turning lights off in offices and so forth. And, and, and you know, the, the time of the, the opportunity of the anniversary celebration hadn't gone away. So we were able to work with them over a period of six weeks to completely transform what was to be this big physical in-person global event into this amazing online digital event where we got, you know, hundreds of thousands of people turning up and this seamless transition from the physical to the digital and carrying on this very important movement. So, you know, to me that 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 meant a lot that we were able to help an organisation, uh, you know, continue that tradition in a very different way. A, a sort of more longer term and less, less technologically exciting uh, thing that we've been involved with over several years was we actually, we built an open source uh, electronic medical record system for low resource environments. And the, the, the challenge there is that, you know, hospitals go and, you know, buy these medical record systems and they're terribly complicated. They're terribly complicated to use as big license fees. And for a lot of um, countries and, and a lot of regional so countries hospitals, in the developing world, you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. yeah, they simply can't, or even in developed worlds, you know, there's a lot of mm. hospitals in rural Australia, for instance, that, you know, simply, you know, cannot afford this type of technology, particularly for Indigenous communities, by way of example. And so, you know, this, this suite of software, uh, which is called Bamni, um, a- enables those hospitals and, um, you know, to take this, to move from what are traditionally paper-based systems, uh, if systems at all, um, into the digital era to have this uh, simple, low-cost uh, mechanism for uh, m- far more effectively administrating their healthcare systems. And it's actually been embraced by um, a, a number of nation states' healthcare systems, so it's a you know it's a real um, achievement of which we're we're proud. Well done. Um, so back in 2017, you were awarded a place. We're talking about your own personal achievements now, of which it's a long list. And I know you're a humble guy, but I'm keen to hear more about um, about what's led to a couple of of those awards and those achievements. In 2017, you were awarded a place in Management Today's Agent of Change Power List. That sounds very significant. It showcases British male leaders, um, you're in the UK at the time, obviously, who are driving mm-hmm. gender equality in the workplace. So there's two parts to my question. First of all, what was it that led to that award in the first place, Chris, do you think? Yes, I, you know, I was very proud to receive it. I, I guess the first thing I, f- I should say, though, there's, you know, and I, and I was proud to, achieve, to uh, receive it because I think it's really important that gender equality is a male priority and not only seen as a female priority or female responsibility, men should be championing gender equality. That's really important. And that's what this award was about. This award was about expressly recognising men who were being champions of gender equality, who were being allies. Um, but the award really wasn't for me personally. It was for, it was for ThoughtWorks. 
and also what ThoughtWorks had been able to achieve over many years. And I just had the good fortune of being its, you know, its, its figurehead and leader in the European business at that time. Um, and what was that award reflecting in ThoughtWorks? Well, it was reflecting that the progress that we'd made over time of being a more representative company with regard to gender than the industry we work in, with um, you know, being uh, quite successful in uh, having a number of women, uh, a disproportionate number of women in leadership roles in our organisation in, in Europe in a traditionally male-dominated industry. I should point out that you know, despite that, we're still a long way from where we wanted to be or need to be to be truly representative. But it just so happened that we were better than many others, most others, and was you know thus leading the pack there. So that's what that was about. Um, it was it what was did recognizing that. And what did ThoughtWorks do specifically to improve the gender diversity within the organisation? It's been Can you a, break that down a bit for us. Uh, it's been a multi-year a multi-year endeavour. Um, you know, the first is uh, you've got to create a culture. Um, that is supportive to diverse communities. Um, if you don't, then you can go and bring in as many people as you want and they're, they're not, you might be able to hire them, that's diversity, but if you don't have inclusivity, if you don't have belonging, then they won't stay. Uh, so you intentionally try to create a culture that was um, you know, supportive and inclusive uh, in that regard. The second was we did a lot to build uh, the, the capability because one of the things we were seeing was that you know, because it's such historically such a male-dominated industry tech, that women would come into it and that quite often after two or three years they would leave. So you see that particularly at the more senior level in, um, in the industry, there's often quite a dearth of women because it is not an attractive place for diverse uh, communities to stay. And so what we did very early on was we created ThoughtWorks University and we had a 50% quota on men, women in that university. And so, uh, and that was started probably 15 years ago now. So very intentionally with a long-term goal of going and uh, actively changing the constituency of the industry by building it from the ground up and then creating a supportive environment where we, uh, you know, hope that people would stay and build, uh, you know, build careers. And that's a, ThoughtWorks University is an internal education program or is it a recruitment program? How does that work in it's terms a, of its role within the, within the business? Yeah, it's an internal education program. Uh, it recruits graduates. And um, in, in pre-COVID days, it, was, it meant flying for six to eight weeks to India or China, having this very immersive um, international experience. Um, in present days, it's a virtual uh, environment. And then you know, in the future, probably some combination of both of those. Um, but, you know, that's what it was about. Well done. And what sort of difference has, has a focus on diversity and inclusion made at ThoughtWorks, Chris? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, as one thing, it's given us huge access to massive pools of talent that for so long, so many of our competitors and so many of our clients were ignoring that, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's just been this huge competitive differentiator for us. You know, as, as study after study shows, um, where creativity involved is, is involved, um, having uh, where business performance is involved, having a diverse workforce equals better results because you're, you're bringing in different perspectives. Um, we're a consultancy. We're a consultancy. So we are delivering um, products to people who use those products for our clients. And if we've got this very monolithic, monolithic group of, you know, predominantly white male developers producing products to be used by the full spectrum of the world, we're not going to be creating very good products. They're going to be pretty terrible. And so it's enabled us to be a much better consultancy if you bring the full spectrum of humanity to, to bear for our clients on our clients and their clients' challenges. Uh, it, it, it quite evidently leads to manifestly uh, better results. Um, and that, of course, in turn, has led to all the things we've talked about earlier about um, you know, our valuation and our growth and our success, et cetera. Well, you're a guy who, who has racked up more frequent flyer points than probably anyone I know. How's COVID affected you personally? Because I know you love traveling. I do love traveling. Um, although I, I have to say after 10 years of being on the road almost every week, um, you know, not traveling has been, you know, it's been a, a, a pleasure in many respects. It's, you know, it's, it's been an opportunity to spend far more time with family, uh, you know, be more intentional. Uh, you know, I've been doing a lot of bike riding and 
um, you know, tennis playing outside, and um, that that's been very good. Um, what I have missed though is um, the in-person interaction with with colleagues and clients. Um, it's it's I think particularly after a year, and, and in New York, you know, we've had our offices closed for a year. We haven't been back. Um, it's starting to draw. It's starting to feel tired. Um, you know, the energy you get from seeing people in person, the energy, the relationships you build from seeing clients in person. Um, we, we've been really intentional. Um, we've worked really hard. Uh, we've done a lot of created virtual stuff, but I'm looking forward to, um, you know, getting in an office. Um, I'm looking forward to not traveling as much as I did, to not accumulating as many miles as I did, uh, but, you know, also to doing it uh, more frequently than uh, the present sitting in my sitting in my apartment 365 days. And any plans to return home to Australia anytime soon, Chris? I, I, I'm sure you would probably rather avoid two weeks of quarantine, but it might be inevitable for you. Uh, you know, no immediate plans, um, you know, for the reasons you've cited. It's just very difficult with the, uh, with the quarantine uh, restrictions. Um, you, know, you need to go for at least two weeks to be able to get through that. I am hoping it's my 50th birthday next year, so I'm hoping I can get back to have a bit of a celebration for that. But we'll see what, see what Australia says with its borders. And future plans for you within ThoughtWorks? Are you able to talk openly? I mean, you've had quite a, a unique experience as North American CEO and you've had so, held so many roles around the world. Have you got a sense of what might be next? No, you know, I haven't looked that far ahead. Uh, I guess you, we've got such a... Um, you know, I'm, I'm what three years into my role here. I think I've got another, you know, number of years where we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, I can honestly say that um, th- that is intimidating enough not to look too far ahead beyond that. Uh, but it, you've given me a good impetus to perhaps start thinking about it. Well, mate, regardless of what happens, um, it, it's an extraordinary story for for both you and ThoughtWorks over the course of the last twenty or so years. Congratulations on everything that you've achieved both there and around the world through COVID, it doesn't get much more challenging than that. We miss you back here in Australia. We, we hope to see you back here for your 50th birthday. Thanks very much again for joining us on Chunk of Change. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure.